The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you again for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdooney. My prayer is that you will be strengthened by these readings. The insight in which Mr. Rushdooney had is significant, not only then, but in today's day as well. But in no way should it replace your own studies in the Scriptures. And I do pray that you will take what you learn and apply it to every area of your life and thought. Freedom and Responsibility, Chalcedon Position Paper number 83. Some years ago, while at the state capital of a southern state, I was asked to speak at the opening session of the House. Earlier, while in the office of the Speaker of the House, that man, with some dismay, expressed his fears for the future. Until then, said this elderly man, the legislature had met briefly every two years. Now, it was by law meeting annually and in session most of the year. He felt that both on the state and federal levels, a year-round legislature in Congress spelled destruction for this country and any other country adopting it. Any legislature in continuous session would be susceptible and radically vulnerable to the great evil of constant pressure from the largest lobby of all. At that time, it was commonly assumed that the largest lobby was the teachers' lobby or the labor unions. Not so, he said, quote, it is the bureaucracy, unquote. They are always close at hand, always active, always full of ideas, and more numerous than all other lobbyists. I am glad, said the Speaker of the House, that I am too old to live long enough to see the full damage the bureaucracy's lobbies will do to the state and to the country. He could have added another factor to this danger from a bureaucracy. Every bureaucracy sees itself as the answer to all possible problems, instead of the free workings of the people, of the marketplace, of the churches, families, and institutions of a society 
A bureaucracy sees all solutions in terms of bureaucratic action and control. In terms of this, nothing is more dangerous to a bureaucracy than freedom, and the ideas of a bureaucracy and a free people are mutually contradictory. Having said this, I must add that bureaucracies arise when a people and their representatives in civil government abandon responsibilities and self-government. It is very easy to rail against various bureaucracies, such as the Internal Revenue, the State Tax Commissions, Land Control Agencies, and so on, but they exist because people have rejected the responsibility of freedom for license, for irresponsibility. Even more easy comes the excuse that a conspiracy is responsible for our plight. Conspiracies exist, they have always existed, but they only flourish when men will not govern themselves, when men seek something for nothing, and when men want a risk-free world. The risk-free life is slavery. Freedom always means risk, and when men seek to minimize risk, this means minimizing freedom. Controlling evil is justice. Controlling risk beyond a minimum means slavery. Today we have the moral order reversed. Evil is given status and privilege. Abortion, homosexuality, adultery, fornication, and more all have legal status, and there are demands to legalize incest and other evils. At the same time, risk is termed evil and is punishable. Doctors are required to be perfect, even though the finest surgery involves risk. Our courts are clogged with cases filled by people who want a risk-free, accident-free world. A non-risk world is a non-free world, and bureaucracies represent the will of the majority in action, creating a world without risk. The U.S. Congress is the U.S. people writ large, or perhaps small. The people delegate powers to Congress, and then they demand not the execution of justice, but the delivery of privileges, entitlements, grants, subsidies, welfare, and more from Congress. Congress, in turn, delegates its powers to the bureaucracy, together with the grant of vast sums of money, to give the people what they want, security and a risk-free life. As Ludwig von Mises noted, quote, Delegation of power is the main instrument of modern dictatorship, unquote. Ludwig von Mises, Bureaucracy, page 5. Tax revolts treat the symptoms, not the problem. The problem is the refusal of people to govern themselves. As long as they are in slavery to sin, they cannot be free men. Quote, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant or slave of sin, unquote. John 8, 34. Only if the Son makes us free are we free indeed. John eight thirty six. Freedom requires risk. It means the risk of our money, our property, and our lives. Most people, when they talk about freedom, see it in radically irresponsible terms as freedom from controls, from taxes, from moral duties and judgments, and so on and on. In effect, they are defining freedom as freedom from causality and they believe in a fairy tale world. I recall some years ago at a college forum where I was one of the speakers hearing a liberal, quote, economist, unquote, speak. He had been important in three administrations as a White House advisor. In his enthusiastic scenario of a liberal agenda, 
he concluded that, if his vision were adopted, then, quote, we can eat our cake and have it too, unquote. Such dreaming is now responsible for the world's growing economic nightmare. To seek the elimination of risk is to eliminate freedom. At the same time that we seek freedom, we must enhance responsibility. It is very important that we insist on the inseparable link between freedom and responsibility. This is well illustrated in Deuteronomy 22.8, which, in the Berkeley version, reads, quote, When you build a new house, you must put a parapet around the roof, lest if someone falls to the ground, you bring blood guilt upon the house, unquote. This law refers to the flat-top roofs of houses in those days. On warm summer nights, people ate, spent their evenings, and sometimes slept on the rooftop. To have such a roof without a strong railing to prevent falling was irresponsible and incurred, religiously and civilly, blood guilt. It was and is immoral to expose people needlessly to danger, and hence it was a punishable offense. Freedom means responsibility, not irresponsibility. However, no bureaucracy enforced the building of parapets or railings. Rather, it was the fact that a fall by a friend or guest could lead to a manslaughter charge, at least, and heavy restitution that morally controlled people and led to the routine construction of parapets. Irresponsibility was severely penalized. In discussing the philosophy of bureaucratism, von Mises said that it leads to seeing good embodied in the state and evil materialized in the, quote, rugged individualism, unquote, of selfish men. The state then is always right and the people always wrong. Page 74. How can such a condition develop? People must have a God. If they reject the living God of the Scripture, they turn to other sources for the good, to the state, to the free market, to reason, and so on, to a variety of false and homemade gods. When men worship false gods, they falsify their total being. The abler and the more educated they are, the more powerful and effective is the sway of evil in their lives. At this point, von Mises' insight was telling. Quote, it is remarkable that the educated strata are more gullible than the less educated. The most enthusiastic supporters of Marxism, Nazism, and fascism were the intellectuals, not the Boers. Unquote. Page 108. The problem, however, with these gullible ones was not their education, but their lack of a biblical faith. We are told in Psalms 14.1, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Unquote. David does not tell us that such men, infidels, do not believe there is a God. Indeed, as Paul tells us, all men know that God is, but they suppress this knowledge in their unrighteousness or injustice. Romans 1, 18-20 The fool tells himself there is no God to punish him, and, in his corruption, he then acts in contempt of God's law. All such action is irresponsible. To be irresponsible is to be irresponsible to the triune God who made us and who hath given us his law to live by. Irresponsibility is towards God and therefore towards his creation and other men also. If we deny God, we deny his law and his moral order. 
we then refuse to believe there is a heaven and certainly no hell. If there is no hell, there is no justice and no risk. Hell means that there is a risk in living. People who believe in a hell-free life are commonly prone to believing in a risk-free life. For them, then, a bureaucracy is a good way of working towards a risk-free world. Bureaucracies are modern man's alternative to the providence of God. God's providence is our assurance that a moral order is basic to all creation, and that even a fallen world must move in terms of God's law. Tyrants may rise up, as did Sisera, but as Deborah declares in her Song of Triumph, quote, They fought from heaven. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera. Unquote. Judges 5.20 If men will not obey God's law, they will have man's law and man's providence in the form of a bureaucracy. If men will not tithe and see themselves as responsible under God for a wide range of duties towards God and towards their neighbor, they will have an income tax, other taxes, and welfareism. There are no easy, quote, outs, unquote, in God's world. As Paul tells us, quote, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap, unquote. Galatians 6, 7. Again, quote, The wages of sin is death, unquote. Romans six twenty three, And we can add taxes also. We cannot have our cake and eat it too. We cannot have a risk-free and tax-free life. The more we try to remove risk from life, the more we create bureaucracies to remove money from us. But first of all, we surrender freedom for slavery. There's one thing slaves have usually done well. Whine about their slavery. I am weary of whiners. February 1987 Piecemeal Destruction an instructive episode from history is the treatment by the Turkish conquerors of the Near East of their Christian populations, which some scholars have admired. In some respects, the sultans, beginning with Mehmet II, gave more powers to the patriarchal offices of the churches by making them a part of the bureaucracy, giving them administrative duties, and a role in the collection of taxes. At key points, however, the church was very seriously undermined. Its power to acquire and hold land and estates were largely wiped out, and also the church endowments. The independence and freedom of the church was thus destroyed, and it was all the more a dependent aspect of the imperial bureaucracy. Another very important power of the church was also almost eliminated, the freedom to maintain schools. Christians within the Turkish Empire had to travel abroad to enter Christian schools and colleges. This had the effect of freezing growth and paralyzing the intellectual and theological life of the churches. Another deadly control was a virtual ban on the ownership of presses by the church. The patriarch Cyril Lucarus of the Greek Orthodox Church was educated in Europe in Catholic and Protestant centers. He became a Calvinist and set up a press in Constantinople in 1627 to bring the scholarship of the West into the empire. Almost at once, the Turks destroyed the press, and Cyril was subsequently murdered. Every anti-Christian order strikes against these three areas in order to weaken and destroy the church. In the United States today, the freedom of Christian schools is especially threatened. 
but there are also some restrictions on estates and on the freedom of the Christian press. February 1987 The Cultivation and Promotion of Impotence Calcedon Position Paper, number 84 In her study, The Night in History, 1984, Frances Guise tells us of the growth of irrelevance in knighthood. Originally, the knight was an important and key figure in feudal society. However, after 1050, knights began to stress their status rather than function, and, quote, what had been a rank became a hereditary caste, unquote, page 26. In time, their lives and their tournaments became, quote, an adjunct of theatrical productions and partook of their character, unquote, page 200. The same thing in time became true of royalty. It became a matter of blood and theater. Earlier, a ruler like William the Conqueror was a bastard whose mother was emphatically not royalty. Later, such a king was ruled out. It was not ability that counted, but blood. Royal, quote, courts, unquote, ceased to be a place of justice and became social centers where dress prevailed in importance over character and ability. What had happened was men preferred the facade to reality. The centers of power became centers of fashion and theater, not of justice and government, and before long they lost their power. When fashion and theatricals became more important to those in power than justice and social advancement, then the end is not far away. To prefer fashion and theater to justice means that the ruling powers have lost their hold on reality. They seek admiration and envy, not results and progress. But this is not all. Art is divorced from Christianity to become a substitute for religion, and the power elite becomes linked to an art elite which is similarly out of touch with reality. Each serves to exalt the other as they go blindly into destruction. Such a direction is not limited to heads of states. It is also true of the world of commerce. Otto Scott has often commented on a revealing aspect of the life of corporations. Their founders are true entrepreneurs, men of ability, vision, and foresight. As innovators, they build a great industrial empire out of little or nothing other than their dedication and ingenuity. Such men vary in character, and their biographies reveal sometimes very real flaws. But they were builders. But there is another fact about them. Often they were short and unprepossessing in their appearance. Many had character traits which today would lead to their immediate rejection by any personnel department. If they appeared today looking for jobs with firms they established, they would be rejected. It was rare for any of those innovators to have a college degree. Today, the firms they founded take college men only, and only those over six feet in many cases. The result is cloning an image of an advertising agency's fashion plate. Is it any wonder that the corporations are having problems? The same problem exists in the church. Administration is often given priority over pastoral and preaching concerns. Quote, ministerial relations, unquote. Committees handle placements in many church bodies, and these committees are more concerned often about loyalty to the church than loyalty to Christ in Scripture. Such a superficial churchmanship leads to a theatrical view of reality. 
ecumenical meetings by failing churches pronounce all kinds of judgment on things they know little about. There is more concern with public relations and a good press than there is with reality. In the world of the theater, life and death are both make-believe, not reality. Reality is no longer real to some people. Theodore Schenck, in his study of the American Alternative Theater, 1982, which he found pleasing on the whole, cited one leading figure in the theater who declared, quote, Life, revolution, and theater are the words for the same thing. An unconditional no to the present society, unquote. But to equate revolution and theater with life is to have lost a hold on reality. Shank said of the Living Theater Group, quote, Life is theater, and theater is their life, unquote. Such a view means that a hold on reality is lost. It should not surprise us, then, that one performer has insisted, quote, Acting is not make-believe, but living exquisitely in the moment, unquote. There is this avant-garde theater today, and this, too, is much of our world. It feels that only when one is on stage, only when one is a part of a, quote, living theater, unquote, is life real. One man seriously told me once that to be truly alive, one had to live in New York City. Is it any wonder today that more and more of our, quote, news, unquote, and politics is dominated by press conferences, public hearings, and television coverage than by actions and accomplishments? On stage, life and death are make-believe, not real. So too are births, accomplishments, and victories. When men move from reality to theater, they sentence themselves to impotence. For the living dead, there are virtues in impotence. It means none of the pains, expenses, and heartbreaks of family life, of birth and death, and the parting of ways. Impotence eliminates many of the cares and problems which are basic to life. Our age obviously loves impotence and death. It favors homosexuality, abortion, euthanasia, and more. It will not face up to the growing epidemic of AIDS, and it continues to live in its fantasy world. The Presbyter Salvian, describing the fall of Trier in the last days of the Roman Empire, tells us that men did not defend the city because they were too interested in the games at the arena. After the rape, looting, and burning of Trier, the survivors petitioned the emperor to rebuild their arena so that the games could go on, and their morale improved. Salvian said of Rome, quote, It is dying, but continues to laugh, unquote. So too this modern age, it is dying, but continues to laugh. Impotence today is cultivated on all sides. A few years ago, at its inception, I joined a national group ostensibly dedicated to studying and implementing matters of national policy. Its members were to be Christians and conservatives. Very quickly, in only a few years, it has become a theater. It is more interested in providing a forum for, quote, big names, unquote, than in serious study. Its meetings are now expensive social events. One might say that instead of being a training ground for war horses, it has become the gathering place to produce geldings and mules. Impotence is cultivated, and ineffectuality is the order of the day. Men must love impotence 
because they spend so much money to produce it. In 1947, in The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis began with a telling chapter on, quote, men without chest, unquote, an example on education as planned sterility. At the end of the chapter, he said, quote, in sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chest and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the gildings be fruitful, unquote. Page 16. This is true not only of education, but of every area of life and thought. The culture and promotion of impotence is central to our contemporary culture. Biblical faith is vital and demanding. It requires that we die in Christ and become a new creation in Him. It requires our total surrender. We must become Christ's creation and creatures. The world prefers a surface religion. It was surface religion which destroyed the medieval church long before the Reformation. Margaret Wade, Labarge, in her study of Henry V, 1975, wrote of the fact that Henry took his religious duties seriously. However, with most people, religion had become conventional. Quote, Conventional religious practice required no individual initiative and did not necessarily imply any personal commitment. A look at the hierarchy of the day provides still another impression of decent formalism, unquote. Page 95. Before the immoralism of recent years, we too had our era of, quote, decent formalism, unquote. It has given way to indecent immoralism and rebellion. I have had calls from time to time from troubled pastors, all with a common problem. People visit their church to see, quote, what's happening, unquote. They want a church where they can be spectators to much action, but they do not want to be part of the work. One pastor reported that one visiting couple said they wanted a church, quote, where things happen and miracles take place, unquote. They did not ask for an opportunity to serve. They wanted to be spectators. This is an easy route to damnation. Given the modern perspective, when Paul was converted on the road to Damascus, instead of asking, quote, Lord, what will thou have me to do, unquote, Acts 9, 6, Paul instead should have asked, quote, Lord, what's in it for me, unquote. Returning again to Henry V, Labarge's comment is of interest when she says of medieval kingship that it was associated with justice. Quote, justice was the prime virtue of a medieval king, unquote. page 187. Not all medieval kings were just, but enough of them were, and the concern for the realities of rule governed them, not theatricals. Even ungodly kings were able to retain power because they did not lose touch with reality. Monarchy disappeared when it became theater, when it lost touch with reality. Ludwig of Bavaria, Richard Wagner's friend and patron, was such a ruler. He was far more beneficent than many a predecessor, but his idea of a kingship was so unrealistic and so theatrical that it proved suicidal for the future of the crown. Wagner himself took Germany and much of the Western world into a land of fantasy and irrelevance. Wagner adopted the current anthropological doctrine of myth as a higher reality and thus a higher realm of truth. 
The same evil doctrine is widely prevalent today, especially in seminaries, Catholic and Protestant. A myth is said to be a higher form of religious truth and not to be confused with falsehood. By, quote, seeing, unquote, the mythological character of the Bible, we supposedly have a firmer grip on truth and reality. How much trust can we place in a mythological bridge across a canyon? Such men may insist that these, quote, myths, unquote, embody a higher reality, but in so speaking they declare themselves to be, at the very least, fools if not knaves. Such professors turn Christianity from the truth of God into a lie called myth. They insist that theater in the form of myth is reality, and by implication, reality is unreal. We live in an age when men believe, quote, life is theater and theater is their life, unquote. They insist that, quote, acting is not make-believe, but living exquisitely in the moment, unquote. This is insanity and a flight from reality. But that flight from reality is all around us. Press conferences replace action, and public relations govern the world of, quote, living theater, unquote. The curtain always comes down on the stage. The play acting comes to an end. But life goes on. It does not end with us nor our children, and we cannot ring down the curtain on neat and invented endings made for an imaginary theatrical world without birth or death. The world of the, quote, living theater, unquote, is not for us. We are told, quote, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Unquote. Revelation 18, 4-5 The impotent have no future. The cultivation and promotion of impotence is the calling of the humanist. Our Lord is the Lord of life. March 1987 Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus the perfect sacrifice, the love he assures by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree where he died for you and me. And if love he deserves, we should.
blesses to us as the husband of the bride to be. Tell the world of his wrath, tell the world of his love, tell the world how Jesus Christ has set you set you free. He is the Lord of life to me. Tell the 